What is the Xbox expansion pass? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, hello. Greetings. I am 343 Guilty Spark, monitor of Installation 04. Greetings to all of you reclaimers here on Xbox Expansion Pass. <laughs> Xbox Expansion. Welcome one, welcome all to episode 111 of the Xbox Expansion Pass, recorded on Sunday, December 5th, 2021. I am your host, Luke Lore, the Insipid Ghost. In this episode, we'll welcome two fantastic guests. First up, joining me will be Jez Corden of Windows Central on to discuss this week's gaming news, including PlayStation's response to Game Pass and Project Spartacus, and the Game Awards. After that, we'll have a review of the surprise hit shooter, Chorus, in an impressive flight sim game. And in the back half of the episode, we've got game designer Josh Glavine of Crate Entertainment on to discuss the console release of the popular ARPG Grim Dawn Definitive Edition. Enjoy. Yet another week of gaming is upon us and behind us. Welcome to XEP, discussing all things in the Gamerverse as they pertain to the Xbox ecosystem. And as I am wont to do each and every week, I like to start the show by offering words of kindness to those who have made my gaming week better. And this week, the words of kindness go to our guest, Mr. Jez Corden of Windows Central, joining me for the gauntlet of, of podcasts you have run this week. And this is your third, as I was saying. Uh, Jez, thanks for being here, man. Thanks for having me, man. I'm happy to be here. I think I was supposed to come on last week, but then something came up, I think. I can't even remember what it was. It's been so hectic the last few weeks, but... We were knee-deep nice in Black now. Friday. That's what it was. Yeah, Black that's Friday. right. I had a Black Friday shift. See, even you remember. I don't... <laughs> last week was a blur, man. <laughs> it was all Black Friday and Black Friday 14-hour shifts and all that fun times, but it's all over now for another year, thank God. So, yeah. What does that look like on your side to be like doing the Black Friday shift? Are you just constantly searching for deals, finding stuff? What's that? What's that mean for you? I mean, yeah, it's it's basically just trying to find the best deals that our audience would find interesting. So, like laptops, tablets, accessories, Xbox codes, games, stuff like that. Um, the whole the whole blogging industry does it every year because um, that's where all the traffic goes. Everyone's hunting for deals and, you know, if we're not hunting for deals, then we're not competing with other people. So everyone has to hunt for deals on that weekend specifically. But yeah, it's uh, it's a lot of hard work, but it's over now. It's over for another year. It is. Does the traffic compare at all? Like, is it is it exponentially more than like a video game article when it when it comes to like Black Friday deals? During Black Friday, yeah, I would say so. I mean, it depends. Like, if, if there's, like, I don't know, Microsoft has bought Sega or something, I'm pretty sure that would get more traffic. But um, it was a slow news week anyway. So it was just all went to Black Friday that week. Although it's nowhere near as much traffic as, like, an event like E3 or, you know, Surface event for us. Um, but, it, again, it was a slow news week generally last week. So 
It was a lot of Black Friday stuff to write about, though. Well, you're right. It's been a slow news week, but I'm so grateful to have you on. We had Paul Tassi on a few weeks ago, and your name was coming up then. As as that was the uh, that was the the like bevy of leaks that were coming out a few weeks ago, and then <laughs> uh, we had Rand on not too long ago as well. Your compatriot in the Xbox too. So it's it's nice to have you here. Um, have things slowed down for you properly? Uh, after Black Friday and after working on Halo previews, I know Brendan's writing the review for Windows Central, uh, but have things slowed down for you or picked up? No, things have definitely slowed down for me at the moment. Um, it's uh, it, it kind of happens this time of year. A lot of a lot of uh, game devs go on vacation. PR teams go on vacation for the holidays. Although there are plenty still hard at work on like Halo servers, for example, and Final Fantasy XIV mm-hmm. Endwalker just launched, and there's like five hour queues for that game. So I'm sure, sure there will be some server engineers working very hard right now across the industry. But um, it, the news cycle does tend to slow down in December, and then th- typically through all the way to February, it's generally pretty slow. Um, but then it starts to pick up again as the the press cycle for E3 rolls around, and we start getting drips of information, usually around you know February, March, April kind of kind of way. So yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to a restful December, a restful winter. I'm just going to hibernate, man, straight up, straight up hibernate. I think likely well earned given all the work that you've had to do, because uh, Microsoft has had quite a few, I would say, newsworthy items over the last two months between Forza, the launch of Halo Infinite's multiplayer, and then uh, I know you had your hands on the Halo Infinite campaign, and based on when this show goes out, we can't even talk about that just yet. Um, although it does come out tomorrow on the 6th. Isn't the embargo up on the 6th? I honestly don't know off the top of my head when the embargo lifts. Um, I do know gotcha. that brendan's locked in our review and it's good to go so um maybe it is the sixth and that's why he's done i thought i was thinking oh wow he's done that quick but maybe the embargo is the sixth and that's why he's done it now um but yeah i can't can't really discuss halo infinite but i am really interested to see how the the media at large react to it and i might i might put out a little article of my own about it um next week but we'll have to wait and see certainly Certainly. And it's been interesting to me to watch the reactions to Halo Infinite's uh, arrival onto the scene in, in its multiplayer form. And then as people discovered that the campaign was out there for, for reviewers and content creators to get their hands on, because it really feels like there's an energy around Halo that there has not been in a very long time. Some people saying as, as you know, far back as Halo 2 or 3, perhaps Reach. Uh, I, I got to say, it's neat to see the community getting excited about it once again, particularly as Battlefield and Call of Duty faltered this year. Uh, however, that's brought its own level of, of animosity and toxicity in discussions of Battle Pass progression, yes? Yeah, it's, it's sort of a mixed bag. Like, I know that Halo Infinite is seeing, like, it's seeing new players in huge amounts just because of the free-to-play format they've chosen for it. Obviously, free-to-play brings with it uh, brings with it a number of, unique challenges i would say like how do you monetize that if you're not if you're not um selling it at retail and and then like some of the you know the classic halo um expectations are sort of i I don't know sort of warped a little bit because of the battle pass and the way progression works and maybe progression is sort of a little bit more locked behind a paywall than it used to potentially would have been in the past and stuff like that but um 
yeah, it's it's. I'd say it's been mixed overall. There's, there seems to be a lot of anger in the the some elements of the community, which is translating sadly into all kinds of toxicity. I saw that to lock down the subreddit yesterday, which is really embarrassing, um, and uh, sort of an indictment of elements of that community. Just sort of ruin it for everyone, really. But I don't know really um, how, but. The thing is, with a lot of this stuff, there's always like a silent majority, a silent majority of people who are just playing it and having fun. And like, those aren't the people who get on forums to complain. They're just playing the game and having fun. And it does seem like every time I log on, on my friends list, everyone's on Halo Infinite, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think there's definitely like a component of the toxic elements getting unnecessary amount of attention, more attention than they deserve. Well, there is still plenty of people just enjoying the game and having fun with their friends and, you know, maybe experiencing Halo for the first time or and stuff like that. I, I found similar thoughts in that respect, because when they when I did find out that they locked down the subreddit, I asked myself, how many people is that actually affecting? How many people would actually be aware of that? The majority of Halo Infinite players, I don't think would know about that. However, I, I do wonder the toll it takes on the developer side because they are seemingly taking a lot of flack for stuff that is surface level. Yeah, it's it's always been... You know, it feels like it's always been the same for Halo. Like, I even before I was a game journalist, I remember people crying about Sprint being added to the game. I remember people crying about stuff like the shoulder tackle and some of the other abilities that were in the game. Um, I'm arguing it mixed up with Destiny now. There was some kind of... Um, like ground pound like attack that had and such. Yeah, yeah stuff that was like Halo that. 5. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I just remember all those discussions and how angry people get over the, the tiniest of details in Halo. I, I have no idea why people get so in their feelings about this franchise in, in particular. Um, but I'm not. I'm not, like people who people who know me from other podcasts and stuff that they'll know I've, I'm, I'm I'm confessedly not the biggest Halo fan out there. So for me, it just doesn't. I don't get why people are so in their feelings about this franchise, but um, coming in from like a uh, world of Warcraft fandom, I can definitely relate some of the experiences there. Cause like Blizzard always used to say stuff like we appreciate the passion and stuff, even when people are angry, cause it shows it's better that people care about your game than just, you know, act like it doesn't exist kind of thing. You know, is it better for Halo that people are talking about it even if we have negative news stories coming out? I mean, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's hard. It's hard to say, isn't it? Like, so there's isn't it that a whole, hard question? It's, it's so but, unfair. There's that whole moniker, that whole sort of ideology of, um, I don't know what you call it. Um, uh, no, there's no such thing as bad publicity, right? So they say. Mm -hmm. And, I do believe that even though there's a lot of negativity out there about the game, there probably is a vast majority of people who are playing it and enjoying it. And like, it kind of reminds me of the whole cyberpunk situation. There was like this mm -hmm. huge uproar about the game in the press, in the media, across YouTube commentary and stuff like that. But the game was actually reviewing okay on, on different platforms. And I was mm -hmm. told by, um, staff at xbox that the the refunds on cyberpunk were you know despite the fact that there was loads of publicity about cyberpunk and you had websites writing how to get a refund on cyberpunk on xbox and playstation and stuff the the refunds for cyberpunk were 
relatively low com- mm-hmm. above the rate, you know, in, in with comparison to the regular baseline of um, averages for mm-hmm. refunds. So mm-hmm. I do think sometimes narratives can skew towards the negative or the extreme, mm-hmm. but, you know, it's hard to say because there is hard to tell for sure. Cause there is this silent majority who are probably just playing it and enjoying it. Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing to watch unfold, I guess. One of the things that I'm keen to watch over this next week and, and listeners, you'll be doing this likely as you're listening to this episode is whether or not the campaign's reception uh, drowns out some of the multiplayer noise because I would have to think that many players are going to be putting a lot of time into campaign over the next week and a lot of the stories will be written about uh, you know the direction that they've taken if they've handled some of the plot line issues of five uh, how they address different things in the expanded lore and I would think that a lot of the coverage will pertain to that and perhaps put the the infinite multiplayer topics on the back burner at least for a little while we know that 343 is reacting fairly quickly in some fronts and i would say eyebrows eyebrow raisingly slow on others Uh, but i'm curious over this next week of whether or not the narrative does start to flip and focus almost solely on campaign for at least a week or so yeah it's it certainly seems to be possible it's definitely like halo's dominating the news cycle for uh, clicks i suppose at the moment um mm-hmm. because of all the controversy people are desperate for any news on them adding things like playlists or improvements to progression or all the other sort of pain points that people are experiencing with the game right now um it will be interesting to see how people do react to the uh to the um the campaign because i definitely have my thoughts i've spoken to some reviewers and my thoughts on in line with some of the people um so but i only know i've only spoke to a few people so be interesting to see what the wider community think um i'm really interested to see how that plans out but can't talk too much about it without violating yeah. the old ndas well yeah i don't want to put you in in that uh scenario at least that wasn't my intention to but let's let's veer away from halo infinite talk because i would imagine that's going to be a pretty heavy topic on next week's show and everyone else's shows for sure uh jez this past week it was quiet in many ways however uh, news of the PlayStation response to Game Pass uh, was leaked by Jason Trier. Leaked may not be the right word there, but reported on by Jason Trier uh, over at Bloomberg discussing uh, what PlayStation's <laughs> answer to Game Pass might be in Project Spartacus. I am sure that you are uh, reasonably well-versed in this. Tell me about it. Um, yeah, I mean, we, me and Rand on the on the, on our other podcast... Um, my podcast rather it's uh we talked we <laughs> talked about this a while ago that um this sort of idea that playstation was going to basically copy xbox's strategy microsoft had been aware of this for a while and uh because microsoft were aware i became aware of it as well i didn't have like a code name for it like spartacus or anything but we did talk about that we thoroughly expect playstation was going to copy them one-to-one like Rand talked about um playstation put in their games on pc nobody believed it but then lo and behold it happened and then we talked about game them paying more attention to game pass and i believed it lo and behold now it's happening um the devil will be in the details though because i see people falling over themselves to to decide whether or not it's a competitor to game pass or not some people are saying it won't be a competitor to game pass because it won't have day and date games 
where, as I see others saying, they will eventually add day and date games. I'm in the camp that firmly believes they will add day and date games eventually. Um, maybe not at launch, but Sony's shown sort of a capacity for testing the waters when it comes to some of this stuff. Like, and Microsoft mm-hmm. themselves did as well. Like, they didn't do day and date games in the original incarnation of Game Pass. They sort of they moved into that later on. So, um. A lot of the discussion will revolve around how how they differentiate from um, Xbox Game Pass itself. Sony has a very strong base of nostalgic franchises and games they can potentially tap into, perhaps in some ways more so than Microsoft themselves. Um, yeah, Microsoft has like games dating back 20 years, but PlayStation has games dating back almost 30 years. Um and that'll that'll hook in a lot of people, but the same was true for Game Pass that it's not nostalgia. Nostalgia's not enough because, like, you you want to hook in those younger gamers, people who like they'll look at a PS One graphic game and think, "Oh, that looks terrible. I'll never play that." You know. And I think mm-hmm. there is a there is a degree of nostalgia. Like, I'm I don't know what your age is, but at my my age, approaching forty, there's um, I can sort of overlook nasty graphics sometimes purely on the basis of nostalgia and i think that's true for a lot of people but i think for most younger gamers that's certainly not going to be the case and um in that vein then what does sony do for content if it's not doing day and date games are they going to sort of approach it more like the ea vault where they put some of their older games in there like uh, god of war and or horizon zero dawn and and maybe save the uh the newer the newer titles for retail the retail cycle and when they expire their um i don't know their how much they can sell at retail then do they pivot them into the vault kind of like what ea does are they gonna compete with microsoft on features like are they gonna offer a family pass where microsoft doesn't are they gonna offer a cloud only tier where microsoft doesn't it's uh that's where it'll become really interesting and and as a you know an Xbox focused podcast, an Xbox fo- focused journalist myself, um, that's where it'll be more interesting for me. Is how does Microsoft respond to that? Because ultimately, at the end of the day, um, we as consumers benefit from competition, and uh, that's what this is all about. Really, it's going to be about competition. Very much so. I mean, I I read based on the I mean, it's the report by Bloomberg, but Sony has not come out and said it. But the idea of a tiered program that helps combine some of the services that PlayStation Plus and PlayStation now offer mm. uh, to me, that is a worthwhile thing for, for PlayStation to pursue. And I like the idea that they're putting it together because I want Game Pass to consistently be under pressure. It's that reason that we've gotten the value that we have from it. And I have to imagine the price of Game Pass will go up at some point given the amount of value they're giving um and i mean i'm inclined to agree with you as well that at some point sony will put their games day and date onto the platform i'm curious though whether or not they'll be able to exploit some sort of multi-platform launch you know similar to the way xcloud and pc operate for microsoft yeah that is um that is where sony gets a bit constrained right and that's where like some of the some of the questions come from about uh, sort of who Sony could potentially partner up with to push the sort of cross-platform aspects of a subscription service. Um, There's been rumors and uh, stuff 
in that vein with regards to PlayStation teaming up with Netflix potentially um, for cloud and sharing games. I don't know if there's been any more on that in Jason Schreier's piece, but um, I just remember those rumors from a while ago that PlayStation was exploring some kind of partnership with Netflix because, you know, everyone sees Netflix as this like huge, huge company and they are a huge company. They've got like some of the biggest subscriber numbers of any subscription service anywhere on the internet. And, um, but the thing is they only have one revenue stream. So they need to constantly be on their toes. And Disney Disney Plus managed to grow to like 100 million users in a year um, on the back of content alone. You know, exclusive content ultimately is what wins in subscription services, which is why I do believe um, that Sony will do day and day at some point because, uh, you know, look at Disney Plus and the way they grew. But um, with regards to cross-platform, looping it back around to your original question, it's sort of like Sony doesn't have a PC presence, save for Steam. And unlike Microsoft, they don't have like the ability to have an app pre-installed and offers pre, pre-offered, basically, to everyone who's installing Windows 10 or Windows 11. So they probably have to look further afield, and which is why partnering up with Netflix could give them access to a very broad mobile audience very quickly or some other some other company as well. Whereas on Netflix's side, it would be nice for them because they won't have to like, you know, build a games company out, which as we saw from the failure that is Google Stadia, Google Stadia Studios, I should say, um, it's not easy. It's not easy to grow a game a gaming company from scratch to make exclusives for a streaming platform. So um, that'll be interesting to look out for as well. I'm inclined to agree. And, and we did have a, a few people write in on that one. Uh, Jam Pack Sam, I did want to say that we're, we're responding to your question on this one. Uh, I'm curious, uh, Jez, does Game Pass need to shift strategy or adjust itself uh, in any way to deal with any type of competitor, whether it's it, whether this turns out to be that or whatnot? Does Game Pass need to, to evolve in any particular way in your mind? It's interesting because the other day, I saw I saw a subreddit post on the Windows subreddit and it had zero votes. And the question was, did Microsoft make a mistake by not pursuing their movie studios plan from um, the start of the Xbox One generation back in 2013? Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to think about now when you've got like a lot of other tech companies exploring movies and TV. You've got like Apple TV making waves with some of its exclusive content. And obviously you've got Amazon Prime absolutely killing it. And Amazon Prime competes directly with Microsoft in the cloud space. And, um, you know, Netflix runs on Amazon Prime as well. And Microsoft surely would like to have, you know, streaming services run on its platform on Azure if... Um, um, if they could, but streaming services are choosing Amazon Web Services right now because I think Amazon has some like super duper patented video encoding stuff that Azure doesn't have. And it, it begs a question, if Microsoft had stuck to their guns in 2013 and carried on pursuing uh, you know TV shows and stuff and actually funded it properly, because Microsoft has a lot of money to play with that's just sitting in the bank and frankly losing value due to inflation, um, they could have like made a good go at that. They're one of the few companies that could have bought their way into that space. 
And increasingly, we're seeing Netflix play around with gaming IP. We're seeing League of Legends explore transmedia. And, you know, the League of Legends uh, TV show, uh, it's called Arcane, right? Off the top of my head. That is mm-hmm. that has absolutely made waves. And that's like, that's appealed to people who aren't even fans of the show. And that's what you want. That's like an amazing marketing tool that Microsoft has absolutely no access to whatsoever right now. So there are transmedia products pro- products in production uh, Xbox right now. We've got the Halo TV show. Mm-hmm. We've got the Bethesda TV shows that are supposedly being worked on. There's rumors of a Fallout TV show with Amazon Prime and stuff like that. But, you know, it's sort of, um, again, it comes back to, like, who could um, PlayStation partner up with to make that a reality. And for me, Netflix is the obvious no brainer there. But for Microsoft, should Microsoft get more involved in that stuff? I think so. Absolutely. Um, there's, they've definitely, I think to some degree fallen behind, like in a way, the halo TV show, you could say was in, in a sense in development hell, even though it's a TV show, which mm-hmm. is weird, weird to describe a TV show in development hell, but we've waited how long was how long ago was that TV show announced or rumored? It's it's been like it feels like it's been like a decade. It like this feels hell, like that. Yeah, it yeah. feels like that. And you know, if it comes out and it's bad, then that that'll that'll have the opposite effect that they want to have. That'll be like, oh man, this sucks, and it it'll make Halo look bad, kind of like the Monster Hunter movie. Like Capcom did a whole Monster right. Hunter movie, and like it was pretty damn awful. It didn't appeal to fans of the game, and it didn't appeal to fans of movies right so if it's done poorly it can go completely the wrong way and um you know so but if it's done right it can have a huge amount of benefits as we're seeing right now for league of legends so well you kind of i do think microsoft should explore it you you touched on one thing that i i'm thinking back to that 2013 version of microsoft versus now i'm not sure it's a bad thing that those that that transmedia stuff did not work out at the time because i'm not sure the ip could have sustained it and handled it before the acquisition of bethesda a lot of microsoft's uh, first party ip were languishing halo wasn't doing nearly what it is doing now in terms of conversation gears had mixed reception with halo's 4 and 5 or uh, gears 4 and 5 even though i love them and uh, I remember you saying quite a bit that Gears was your jam as well, but I'm not sure the IP could have handled transmedia, whereas now I think it's on much firmer ground to do stuff like that. You know, it's it's interesting you say that because I asked um, I asked someone at Microsoft a while ago, like, why don't you do a Smash Brothers clone? You know, or why don't you do why don't you do a, a, a kart racer like Mario Kart and stuff? And they basically said what you just said to me. Is that they they feel that they need to earn their way towards that, which means like um, basically uh, getting all the franchises in a sort of a stable place where everyone feels positively about them. So I think you're completely right by saying that that transmedia probably only works if people actually feel positively towards the thing in the first place and if everyone's mad at gears or everyone's mad at uh, halo or whatever then it just comes off as a cash grab or it, it comes off as like i don't know just kind of desperate maybe in a way it's mm-hmm. it's definitely more complicated than like you we could potentially give it credit for here but i think you're totally right in saying that well it's definitely something to watch and i'm curious to know how microsoft responds to any competitor luna whether it's playstation side or 
uh, you know, somebody else entering into the fray. It'll be interesting to watch how the big three handle subscription services uh, over the next few years, particularly as they grow. Uh, let's transition, though, Jez. The Game Awards, it's coming up this week. A lot of conversation around it. Most recently, uh, Activision being involved in uh, a number of different scandals and then having uh, an article put out regarding that in which Jeff Keighley responded to, I suppose, saying that, that Activision would not be at the at the Game Awards unless they were you know, nominated for a particular nomination. That was a heavy, strange, awkward topic. Uh, thoughts yeah. on any of that? Yeah, like it's it's hard, man. Like I appreciate what Jeff Grubb, um, not Jeff Grubb, <laughs> the other Jeff, Jeff Keeley. Uh, sorry, I'm a bit tired, and it is Sunday. But um, I appreciate what Jeff Keeley's trying to build with the Game Awards, and I appreciate that it's not easy. Um, I appreciate that he has to navigate a very secretive business that has a lot of inside connections and almost. I don't know, bordering on corrupt in some ways where like, you know, friendships can sort of, you know, save people who deserve to be fired from being fired like Bobby Kotick, uh, CEO of Activision. So Jeff Keighley is navigating a very cutthroat world and I appreciate the, the difficulty that he has to go through with doing that. But on the flip side, he's also put himself right in the middle of it because... He went to bat for Kojima when uh, Kojima screwed over, you know, uh, Konami, sorry, screwed over Kojima's Mm -hmm. business division at Konami and basically treated all the staff really badly. And he used his platform to uh, basically speak out on an industry social problem. And he created that expectation that he would keep doing that. And when, like, when you look at it now, and there's like potentially dozens or maybe even hundreds, maybe even more people affected by how they've been treated by Activision Blizzard. Activision, by the way, just announced even more layoffs uh, just before Christmas at Raven Software, which is just absolutely horrible. Um, it's sort of it sort of like begs the question, why did he go to bat for his buddy, Kojima, who's also on the board? Why did he use that platform to do that for Kojima, but not for all the people affected by Activision Blizzard? And that's sort of coming back to haunt him now. Like lots of people are bringing that up and criticizing criticizing him for that sort of inconsistency. And, um, you know, I agree. I think it's fine to have like, I think it's fine to be apolitical if you sort of... um, you know, find it exhausting and just don't want to engage with it because it's it's a load of crap a lot of the time. Sorry, mm. sorry for the cover language there, but mm. um, at the same time, he's got the platform and he is in a position to do something, and he's shown willing to do something in the past. And why not this time? And then you look at the advisory board, and it's like, oh well, Activision's on the advisory board, and so is Kojima. So again, yeah. it sort of comes back to this whole sort of you know, one rule for one rule for us, a different rule for you kind of insider sort of sneaky stuff going on, which is kind of, I don't know, it's almost depressing and it makes you feel alienated. Like there's this like secret club of dudes who like they, they help each other out and then ignore the rest of the workers. So I, you know, I appreciate that it's, he's in a tough position, but I also think it sucks that he, you know, sort of has shown a little bit of a double standard here, but 
that was the bad taste in my mouth as well was the inconsistency and finding out who's on different advisory boards and whatnot. Because uh, I think he is in a consistently precarious position when it comes to managing nominations, being seen as the guy who decides that stuff when, in fact, he's not a jury member on, on those things. But when it comes to stuff like this, human rights issues almost, it, it is a bit frustrating to see the double standard taking place and not wonder. And I think it's a, a shame that we have to worry and wonder about it. Yeah. So. Anywho, Famous Seamus did write in asking some Game Award predictions. Jez, anything you're predicting outside of uh, some of the scandalous stuff in, in the strictly video game sense of the word? <laughs> I'm predicting game reveals. I actually, I couldn't care less about the awards because, you know, having found out some the way the jury system works and I've had people, because I, I wrote an article, you know. That's calling, right, you were the talk of the town with Forza, weren't you? Yeah, indeed. Uh, I upset a lot of people with that article because, you know, I called out the jury over the, the lack of nomination for Forza as Game of the Year. Then a bunch of the jury members reached out to me and they were basically like, we didn't have time to actually review it or, you know, examine it properly because the nominations had to be in um, before Forza servers actually went live. So they were playing it in single player mode and, you know, if, if at all, and Forza in single player is a very different experience to the connected mode where like you see your friends' cars driving around and you can have seamless races with them and stuff like that. So basically they were in an early access version of it, which to me calls into the question Forza's eligibility for the, this year's awards at all. Maybe it should have been considered next year. I don't know. But that's another topic entirely. Um, I just sort of... I, I just I don't really rate the awards. I don't think they're impartial, especially because there's game game publishers on the advisory board, and they know the way that games get nominated, and they know what what marketing they have to do to increase the likelihood of their games getting an award, where other games don't have access to that. So you know, all award shows are flawed, and all award shows are, have a element of pol- politicization, I guess, but. And it's for that reason, I just don't care about the awards. I just care about the trailers. And I think Jeff Keighley knows to some degree that a lot of people feel the same way and they don't really care about the awards because everyone does award show these days. Windows Central did one as well. We did one. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Resident Evil was was our pick for Game of the Year, but Resident Evil Village. But I do. I am expecting Hellblade 2 there. Um, Jeff Grubb also... Um, put that out there that he's expecting Hellblade 2. Um, I think I heard a while ago that Hellblade 2 was going to be shown off towards the end of the year, was what I heard specifically. And I didn't know if that meant Microsoft was going to go for an XO 2021 or whatever, or do their own show, or just you know put it on YouTube video or something. But um, at this point, it, you know, with Jeff Grubb coming out from VentureBeat and saying that too, it kind of it kind of feels like the it's the obvious thing that it's going to be a Game Awards thing. So I am expecting to see Hellblade two um, exactly in what sort of style and format it'll be there. I'm not too sure. Um, it could be like a sort of another CGI trailer sort of thing or cutscene stuff hopefully it'll show some gameplay hints combat or how you interact with the world hopefully the uh, hints about the game having an expanded scope and stuff like that i'd love to see hellblade there so that that would be my top prediction but 
beyond that, I'm I'm not really sure. I'm kind of I kind of want to go in blind and just wake up the next day because you know it airs at two in the morning in the UK, so I never actually watch the live show. But um, I'll definitely check out the trailers the next day, and I hope there's like loads of cool stuff there. I saw a rumor that Prey Two could be there, which would be absolutely amazing if uh, that's the case because Prey Two is one of my favorite games of last gen. Uh, Prey One, sorry, one of my favorite games of last gen. But do you have any predictions? Any hopes or dreams? That's kind of the the tough thing there is that we really don't know much of what Xbox and Microsoft are going to be doing in 2022 beyond Starfield. So I'm curious to see kind of what they drop, if anything, to talk about this next year. And we also seem to know a lot about their upcoming slate over the next few years. You know, Fable, Avowed, Perfect Dark, uh, Indiana Jones, that kind of stuff. So Mm -hmm. I'm curious as to how surprised we could be with new things are we just going to see gameplay reveals i mean hellblade 2 seems to me like the obvious choice to show some gameplay for given that was how they they brought the xbox series x into existence was at the game awards uh with yep. an incredible hellblade 2 trailer uh but i i don't have a prediction but i have a hope that we begin to see at least something else for microsoft's 2022 i guess Redfall's in there Redfall and starfield um but is there anything else next year that i i'm missing off the top of my head um i don't know man a lot of people a lot of people bring up avowed um maybe even the outer worlds too um you know there's there's a huge amount of stuff microsoft could show there you know redfall um god knows fable gameplay perhaps or is that too soon even i think i'm honestly not sure i want to i want to my gut instinct is it's too soon but honestly don't know could go either way really I uh, I am curious to know what type of new IPs we see happen at the Game Awards. If we see uh, anything announced that doesn't have a precedent in another company in in uh, a franchise, another franchise of any kind. And I don't even mean Microsoft specifically, but you know, will PlayStation show new games? Will Nintendo show new stuff? Uh, because to your point, that's where a lot of eyes go. Yeah, yeah. So famous Seamus, thank you for writing in on that one. Uh, Captain Logan has a question for you, uh, Jez. And I think this one is, is, it echoes some of the stuff we talked about with Paul Tassi a few weeks ago and on the journalist side of things. Um, he asked, what's the drive behind revealing unannounced projects in a time where opinions are easily formed off very little data and tend to be hyperbolic? Um, that's something you have to contend with often, I think, when you deal with information that is known and not known. Uh, for sure. Where's the balance uh, of that? Yeah, it's, it is a balance. It's a constant balance. Like the amount of stuff that I do hold back, you, you, people don't see that because I hold mm-hmm. it back. So, you know, there is definitely a balance. Sometimes like um, the balance tips in uh, the, the wrong way. And, um, you know, I've regretted it in the past. Like, for example, I leaked a while ago, I leaked... Um, this was years ago now, I leaked that Microsoft was working on a new achievement system for Xbox. Mm-hmm. And um, Mikey Barra, who now, who now leads Blizzard, he actually tweeted out that it was, um, it was false information, that it was fake news. You know, and that really, like, at the time, it was quite damaging to me. And I was like, um, oh, damn, maybe I shouldn't have, you know, maybe I should have double, triple checked this and stuff. But then, like, not a week later, Microsoft patented the achievement system they were working on and it was like oh well now i have this to prove that i wasn't making it up you know and then microsoft was kind of forced to admit that it was something they'd been working on you know so it it is like 
a balancing act from for for myself, but also like more importantly, and this is def. I want to stress this. I'm constantly thinking of like what effect this will have on the game, and more importantly, the developers and the artists who work on the game, because you know the last thing I really want to do is hurt developers at the end of the day. Which is why when I did talk about the avowed gameplay that I'd had my hands on and that I've that I saw, that I didn't show show the gameplay itself because I didn't want I didn't want people to you know make clickbait about the fact that it had like no lighting yet and it was a pre-alpha build and some things didn't have textures and things like that mm-hmm. it was not intended for public consumption but at the same time i wanted to talk about it because it was a really exciting and cool and the combat systems looked like fully implemented but but also because it was out there and i'd seen other people sharing it um in secret places and i was kind of like well I'm also in a position where I have to compete with, you know, other journalists and other writers and bring, you know, it's part, it's my job to bring attention to Windows Central, you know. So I'm constantly under this sort of pressure from my side as well to deliver, you know, content that is compelling and can make a name for Windows Central. I mean, that's literally my job, you know. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like, it's weird because my I don't get paid based on clicks. Um, I don't think anyone really does in the business anymore. I don't know any company that pays per click anymore. I think that, that was really? something that happened a long time ago. Yeah, I, I don't think anyone does pay per click anymore. Um, so it's it's not like I have to like hit a certain amount of clicks per month. I've never had a quota or anything like that. I don't know if other companies do that kind of thing where it's like you have to hit this much traffic on a month or you lose some pay or something like that. I don't have any quotas or anything like that. But in a way, because of that, I sort of, I still feel this sort of almost like imagine, imagined pressure to, you know, bring attention. So, you know, to summarize, I do want to, I do always think about how it will affect the devs and I do try and present things in a sort of, you know, a light that I think will be positive as much as it deserves to be positive, you know. Um, for example, like I, if I was, if I'd uncovered something like, the kind of things that you know Jason Schreier uncovers, or you know s- stuff like uh, the abuse at another studio. Of course, I wouldn't. Put, you know, of course, I wouldn't put it. Try and spin it in a positive light, mm-hmm. you know. But like I say, it's all a balancing act. I just try and present it in the the realist, positive kind of light that you can, and and try and hold stuff back. But sometimes things just they're just out there, mm-hmm. and other people have access to them. Like that that Xbox achievement system. Microsoft uploaded the code for that to the Xbox One. You know, people had, you know, op- activated it using, you know, Xbox dev kit mode and stuff like that. And uh, some of the, some of this, some of these most recent leaks, Microsoft had, you know, it wasn't even like they'd, um, there was some, there's someone at Microsoft actively leaking content. It's just Microsoft sometimes puts things, somewhere where it's easily accessible like i've seen them they've uploaded blog posts to their their blog post staging place and if you know how you can scrape that data it's like publicly available on the web yeah there's no like there's no like public facing url but there are people who like scrape the website and they scrape the microsoft store sometimes they'll put a store listing up that isn't supposed to be live and they won't link it anywhere but there are people who use bots to scrape the scrape the store 
for data and then you can find all kinds of leaks coming out of there and then it just becomes out there and then at that point it just becomes like well if it's going to leak anyway it might as well be me so it is a balancing act and it does kind of suck and i honestly don't really like doing it but one of the things that i always wonder fear for or, or anything is that the idea that once you leak one thing, there is a compelling drive to one up yourself. Do you feel that? Not really. Not really. Um, I mean, I, I said, I said before, like, um, on another show that I knew that Microsoft was buying Bethesda a good, maybe 12, 12 ish hours before it all went down. Mm-hmm. I could have leaked that. And I was like, I could post this and, um, you know, it'd be, it'd be like, it'd be a career making moment for me. It would have been, you know, cause that, that's like a blockbuster announcement. And to be able to post that as an exclusive would have been huge. Right. But, um, I knew I was the only person who knew this, like beyond, um, you know, the Microsoft internal people and, you know, the information that I received it how i received it and stuff so i did resist the temptation to leak that like honestly there there wasn't even much temptation at all i just sort of like i don't want to take this away because it would be a huge moment for microsoft so if you'll notice when i posted that article it was posted like on the hour exactly when i knew they were going to announce it themselves Mm -hmm. um and I think um, Jason Schreier posted it at the same time as well, which means he probably had the same information that I did. Mm-hmm. But um, but no, I don't really think of it like that, like wanting up myself and stuff like that, because I just ultimately just want to provide good content for people. And and um, some of my favorite articles are just like help articles, like guides and stuff. Mm-hmm. I wrote like a, I wrote a beginner's guide for the Long Dark a really long time ago that got a ton of traffic and you know, from Google, like not, not many people who are on Twitter and stuff probably read that, but it helped a lot of people on Google who were looking for ways to get into the long dark, which isn't, which at the time it wasn't like a straightforward game to get into, you know, I honestly like writing the guide content a lot more than the leak stuff, but you know, it doesn't grab as much attention sometimes. Sure. Sure. Makes sense. Makes sense. Well, uh, let's before we go too far into the super serious realm, I, I do have to ask uh, Jordy from Xbox Era wanted you to comment on any mayonnaise related topics. Uh, <laughs> any did you, mayonnaise um, news for you? <laughs> did you see uh, um, in the UK, Hellman's mayonnaise? Is it Hellman's or was it Heinz? No, I think it was Heinz. They're doing um, a, ch- a special chocolate orange flavored mayonnaise no. for Christmas. Yep. No. Yep. Oh, and you're probably all over that, aren't you? I haven't actually found it in a store yet. I don't know if they just posted on social media for a joke or something. Um, but I will. I'm going to seek that out, and I will. I will review it on Twitter for for people oh, who are no. interested. Chocolate Jez. orange flavored mayonnaise for Christmas. I mean, some things shouldn't <laughs> be discovered, though, Jez. Some things <laughs> need to be left. Uh, maybe yeah left unconsidered for sure uh and then alex tagged onto that he wanted to know if you had any shrimp related topics which i think is the funniest silliest meme that you guys have created over there oh my god that was so so weird i i was i was really sleep deprived right 
And I saw I saw on Discord there was like this shrimp emoji with the the laughing joy face on it. You know, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Someone had like spliced the joy emoji onto the shrimp, and I th- in my sort of sleep deprived state, I thought it was the funniest thing I'd seen in weeks. So then I just put the Xbox logo on it, and then posted on Twitter, and. Uh, Every, but everyone was like, "Oh my god, what is Jez teasing here? Is this is this a cryptic leak? Is this an exclusive?" <laughs> See, that's just, the danger when you know stuff. Now they assume you know everything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so then man. I started. I started. The, I started telling people to go and ask Special Nick over at Reset Era what it meant, just to be just to be like mean to him. But uh, but yeah, no shrimp related news, unfortunately. Although I did have shrimp and rice and salad for dinner yesterday well there we go there we go uh last topic uh for this week of course vince zampella taking on a bigger leadership role over at ea he's uh, head of respawn head of ripple effect which is a newer studio that's going to be working with battlefield related content uh looks like he's taking charge more of the battlefield franchise as a whole uh, and then kind of by default, Ripple Effect is going to be working with uh, Halo co-creator Marcus Leto uh, to work on their Battlefield Expanded Universe. Is this related to Battlefield's very troublesome launch or was this in the works for some time? Um, hmm, it's interesting. It's hard to say for sure, you know, without like some like more deeper reporting on this. Um, maybe Jason Schreier's already um, analyzing it and maybe already investigating it. But um, I've made the joke on Twitter that EA should just make Vince Zampella CEO at this point. Like it, yeah. it feels like it feels like he's the only exec there who has any idea what he's doing. Um, obviously, Vince Zampella made um, is responsible for Infinity Ward and the the sort of the the propelling of call of duty into the franchise that it franchise powerhouse that it became is also responsible for Titanfall and you know basically one of the best launch games of last gen or well launch window games of last gen i should say right and um and then responsible for ea's apex legends which is like you know blew up out of nowhere unexpectedly and then responsible for jedi fallen order which is the only single player game that ea's found any success with in recent times so he certainly knows how to make a video game that chap and um i think it's only a good thing that he'll be on battlefield but it's kind of like i said i said this with rand on um on our podcast the other day that the best thing about vince ampella and it's sort of similar to what phil has done for xbox is that Vince will have the political clout to say no. He will have the ability when EA execs come and knock in and saying, this game needs more loot boxes or this game needs this monetization or this game needs that and this game needs you know all this extra stuff, Vince will be able to have the clout to say no. He'll be able to say, no, this is a bad idea. Here's why it's a bad idea. You should trust me because look at my track record. While all these suits who don't have any experience making a game, who just want to, you know, deliver dividends for their shareholders, um, they will they will hopefully shut up and listen to Vince Ampella. So, and I I kind of feel that Phil has become that 
that vehicle for Xbox within within Microsoft. Vince had the political clout. Um, not Vince. Phil had the political clout to go to Microsoft and say, "Look, we need more money to invest in this. We need, you know, this game needs to be delayed more, or you know, this studio needs more hiring, or we need to make these acquisitions." Phil got Xbox promoted to the senior leadership table and made it a central force within Microsoft, um, sitting alongside Cloud and Office. Xbox actually enjoys higher elevation than Windows itself, or it did for a, for a time anyway. So, and that's like that's important when you're dealing with like a huge corporate entity that sort of has a degree of. Too many, have you heard the phrase, too many chefs spoil the broth? Yeah. Well, yeah, corporations are rife with this problem. Um, I'm learning that too, since Windows Central was purchased by Future, that um, political will and the, the, the clout you need as a leader is almost more important than your actual ability because sometimes you'll you'll know what needs to be done but no one will listen to you. No one will respect you enough to agree and they'll just veto you, you know? So I think it's only going to be a good thing for EA um, ultimately in the long run, and it will lead to more money. It might be, it might be perceived as riskier for, for whatever reason. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure it'll be perceived as riskier. If like Vince comes back and says, this game needs to be delayed. Um, because we want to make sure that it actually can deliver on what fans want. Um, but I think it'll ultimately lead EA down a better route to becoming a better company, to ultimately be making more money and ultimately delivering more for shareholders. Um, I do hope he ends up being the CEO one day. I really do, because having... Because Phil, like Phil, he makes games and having someone lead in leadership position who understands the process of making a game seems to be a rare thing. It always just seems to be like suits and people just sort of thinking they know like Bobby Kotick, but Bobby Kotick doesn't have the first inkling of like the, the minute to minute process of making a game. And that reflects in an inkling of many things. (laughs) Yeah. He's like, He's just, oh man, I could do a whole show about everything wrong with that guy and that company. But, you know, what can you do? You can't right. really, yeah. you, you can't do anything without the clout to push these people out. And hopefully Vince does have that clout someday. I hope the same thing, because to your point, he's not made a bad game. Respawn's not made a bad game. They've worked very hard uh, to cement their themselves among kind of the best of the best in terms of studios and and his leadership is kind of the the symbolic representation of that so here's hoping they can get uh ea and and battlefield specifically back on track i'm curious to to see how ripple effect and marcus leto's uh influence on that pans out i know disintegration was his last project and that disappointed uh for them and that studio but it'll be interesting to see kind of how that plays out going forward uh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Uh, Jez, I think that's a good spot to wrap up unless you're planning on leaking any and everything here on. <laughs> uh, no, I think, I think I need to hold off on the leaks for a while, but next well, year is going to be a fun you. year is all I'll say. 
Oh, oh okay. So we're teasing now. Cloud we're gaming teasing. Fan. I'm teasing. If you're if you're into cloud gaming, if you're into what Microsoft's doing with the cloud, next year is going to be amazing for you. So That's exclusive cloud only games coming next year. Uh, <laughs> well, not quite. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> but um, it'll be a good year for cloud. I think. I look forward to that. I want to know what you're teasing, and uh, I can't wait to find out. Jez Corden, Windows Central, Xbox Two, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me, man. It's been nice. I appreciate it, man. Listeners, we're going to jump ahead. You'll have a review of Chorus, uh, the the recently released Chorus, and, of course, an interview with Crate Entertainment developer uh, Josh Glavine about the definitive edition of Grim Dawn that just launched. Enjoy. On now to my review of Chorus the Game. Guys, you can find a written version of this over on SeasonGaming.com. A little more structured, a little less freeform uh, than this, but I was able to put together a written review as a contributor over at SeasonGaming.com, so do check that out as well. For the audio listeners only, I got to tell you, Chorus is an amazing game, and it's in a genre that is largely underrepresented in the console space. The 3D open world shooters uh, just don't seem to have much of an audience right now, and I'm hoping Chorus does a lot to change that because it is just immediately evident how polished this overall experience is. Uh, For old school gamers, this is reminiscent of games like Colony Wars or Star Lancer, or maybe even the Rogue Squadron sequels like Rebel Strike and Rogue Leader. And in truth, it's one of my surprise hits of the year. Very quickly did I realize that this is one of my favorite games to come out in 2021 uh the crit path version of this will take you about 10 to 12 hours to go through the main campaign but i'm at 17 plus hours at this point because there are so many incredible side missions that you can go through to upgrade your ship and expand kind of your knowledge of the world which is extensive the world is huge several different areas that you can reach by jump gates uh open up to a number of different side missions ranging from like escort missions to missions where you are solving essentially flying puzzles to maybe restore power to a station or get air to people that are running out of it in in cold storage kind of thing. Is There's a lot of really cool, compelling mission types, but also enemy types as well. But I'd be remiss if I started the t- discussing the enemy types without describing your role in this game. You are piloting a starfighter for the majority of the time, and throughout the entirety of the time, you are piloting one type of ship or another. You'll start off with a very basic starfighter, and then very quickly, you'll be upgraded through kind of story means to to your kind of elite best version of this starfighter, which is called Forsaken. Now, Forsaken goes by Forza and is a sentient ship all unto himself, Uh, and essentially he is the second protagonist of this story. You, your character is named Nara, and she is a largely con- uh, an elite pilot. And I would consider her to be this version, this universe's equivalent to a Jedi. She has these powers that we call rights in this universe, and these rights range from very basic things like uh, sensing the world around you to suddenly being able to teleport or grab a hold telekinetically of another ship and hurl them at one another. It's very Force Unleashed, but you're piloting a Starfighter, and it's dope. It's really, really cool. But Nara, the pilot, and Forza, the ship, do not get along for the majority of the campaign. They're at odds with one another as they kind of figure out the backstory and deal with a lot of guilt that they both have for these troubled lives that they lead. Uh, It's compelling. 
and some of the writing it gets very cheesy at points in fact uh nara does this thing with inner dialogue where she'll whisper to herself and it's really obnoxious at certain points but the gameplay is so sublime and so wonderful that it is it's okay it's easily forgiven i really enjoy my time flying around in this 3d space fish labs has done an incredible job at polishing the starfighter controls uh, and you are are treated to a number of different types of engagements and abilities that your ship has as well as nara has uh, and you have like mechanical stuff to her her right abilities as well as you play and your rights upgrade you are you have access to more of those powers and you can upgrade them with various things throughout the world and you're rewarded for exploring that world there are things like hull fragments and ship fragments and different types of power upgrades for different weapons and that you'll discover throughout and it's all very compelling it's all very motivational as you go and get credits and then you head to a space station upgrade your gatling gun upgrade your lasers uh, it does a great job at giving you a sense of progression with the the, the starfighter uh, overall more to the point the reason that you would be upgrading the starfighter is that you are treated to a bevy of different enemy types different types of capital ships different types of starfighters anything from these little crows that are pretty easy to kill up to these kind of gunships that will patrol at and are good at taking down capital ships uh, certain abilities that you have, those rights, will lend themselves towards handling a lot of these starfighter problems that you have. If a ship has shields on one side but not another, uh, the game wants you to use Nara's drift ability to drift around in 3D space and whip around in zero-G and then blast the enemy from behind. It's really, really fun. It took a little bit of a learning curve, but it was so uh, expertly executed in its its introduction of these powers that I had very little problem with it. In fact, the first seven or so hours of the game, I was playing on hard mode and did not know it. It was difficult. It was frustrating at times, but I didn't realize I'd accidentally bumped it into hard, uh, but it did such a good job of onboarding me that it wasn't a problem. Uh, I really enjoyed flying about the world, seeing the different visas that are available to you. There are brilliant shadow effects as these you know, broken space stations or asteroids will be casting grand shadows over the different levels that you'll experience uh, due to the light sources being obstructed. It's a really, really cool to be flying through a shadowed effect and then see weapon trails of missiles or laser beams flying past your ship at different points and casting shadows of their own. That was a really compelling element that uh, I found very rewarding as I, as I flew about and combated all these different types of vehicles. Uh, it was a good time. I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, one of the cooler things that you can do is grab hold of, of other fighter ships and hurl them. That is a late game addition to it, and it's one that I've been having a lot of fun with for sure. Uh, let's see, what else might you want to know? The sound design. It's something of a mixed bag here. Something of a mixed bag in that you have these brilliant visuals, and then you have voice actors that are very committed to their roles. The voice actor for Forza, the voice actor for Nara, they are both fully committed even when the dialogue gets cheesy. And yet uh, it, it'll it make you chuckle. To switch over to the, to the vehicle sound designs, some of them are really, really impactful. Like when you're boosting, you hear this little kick in. Uh, other things are very muted. And I'm wondering if that's to, to kind of showcase that you're in space and flying around. Uh, but I found myself kind of at odds with how good visually the game looks to and some parts some lackluster sound design here and there 
at various points in the the campaign, you will take control of a capital ship and those are slower. It's like you're taking over for another pilot at some point. They're slower, far less agile, but their firepower is immense. They are armed to the teeth and you can be blasting fighters out of the sky at at five, six times what you were doing when you're piloting around your starfighter. Uh, it's really neat. And I really enjoyed those segments because it was nice to see the combat from the other side. Like if I'm t- taking on a capital ship, what might it be like to be uh, fighting me? That was a cool, compelling element to it. Uh, the story itself is is in some ways run of the mill, but it's a redemption and revenge story for Nara as she's kind of dealing with the guilt of destroying an entire planet uh, and trying to find her way back into redemption and to being able to forgive herself there is a cult called the circle in here there's fantastical creatures that are well beyond your understanding there are uh, plenty of different pirates that you'll encounter throughout your uh, 10 to 12 hours if you're crit pathing 17 is where i'm at at this point because i'm just enjoying exploring it uh, i gotta say i love this game i really love this game it's available for 40 bucks out the gate uh and i would have paid 60 for it and been quite happy i love this game and i think you guys should all check it out uh i'm sure the the accidental effect of releasing in in the same uh week span as when halo infinite is going to come out is not going to do any favors to it but don't sleep on it it's beautiful it's fun uh, sublime space combat and you should absolutely give it a go Alrighty, guys, I am very fortunate now to welcome Josh Levine, game designer from Crate Entertainment, here to discuss the latest release of Grim Dawn Definitive Edition, now available on Xbox and Xbox Series S and X. Josh, thank you for coming, man. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm stoked to be here. I'm excited to to meet you, to chat with you. Uh, I was just recently made aware of Grim Dawn as it made its way to to the console space because I was yeah. I'm not much of a PC player. That has to be exciting for you guys. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, I think that the uh, the big thing for us releasing on console is is like you said, opening this up to a new audience. You know, I mean, it was it, it, we're kind of uh, PC gamers at heart. I'm I'm a, I'm a huge console gamer, but I think the studio in general is sort of PC gamers at heart. Um, and mm-hmm. though we do all play console games, it was sort of like a, a totally new experience for us to take this game that we had made years ago for the PC and, and kind of finally bring it to this new audience. You know, I'm, I'm, we're hoping that people like it as much on consoles as they do on PC, too. We'll see. <laughs> well, there, there's so much to delve into on that because Crate Entertainment, uh, you know, a quick visit to the About page on your website uh, lists names from so many well-known spaces throughout the gaming industry. Uh, yeah. And then, of course... Grim Dawn, I think, has its origins in Kickstarter. Is that true? It does. Yeah. You know, I mean, I guess the quick story for Crate Entertainment is that uh, a bunch of us that are at the studio now um, worked together a long time ago at a studio called Iron Lore that made PC RPGs, a lot like Grim Dawn. Mm -hmm. Um, That studio closed, and the founder of Crate Entertainment, Arthur Bruno, um, when that studio went under, he's you know he set out to sort of do his own thing, and that's that's sort of where the whole Creator Entertainment thing started. And he got started on Grim Dawn, working himself, kind of just he and a couple other people. Um, you know, I was there a little bit in the early days, and some of the other ex-employees of Iron Law were there in, in the early days, but they really didn't get their big start until they did a Kickstarter, which was really cool. And that was a really long time ago. I was like, that was back in like. Uh, uh 2007 or 8 maybe 2000 yeah maybe late 2008 or something like that (laughs) yeah 2009 maybe early 2009 i wasn't actually with the studio at the time but um yeah so it's been a long it's been a long adventure i mean it 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 was it's a 
I always want to talk more to people about it because I think that people see the game that we've made on PC and, you know, it's done pretty well there, but I don't think that they see the fact that the studio itself is this crazy success story of just a couple people starting out and being helped by their audience. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of games that have been kickstarted out there, but I feel like this one in particular, this studio exists because an audience for our game back in 2009 said, Hey, you know, we really want you to make this game. Here's some money, make this game for us, you know, <laughs> Which mm-hmm. was, and we're here today, you know, some number of years later and it's, and, and we're really here because of that. I mean, I don't, I don't want to belittle the, the sacrifices and stuff that the people start, who started the company made because they really did, but we really are here today releasing on the Xbox because those early fans got in on the Kickstarter and said, you know, hey, here's some, here's some cash, make this for us. <laughs> and for listeners who are unaware, Grim Dawn is an action RPG. Uh, I want to say, and Josh, please correct me, I want to say that that it's reminiscent of Diablo, but is that my amateur eye or is that a, a true statement? No, that's, I mean, that's absolutely a true statement. Um, I think that a lot of us grew up playing Diablo. We loved the game. Um, it was, it's, we love the genre, action, action RPG genre. Um, I think calling Grim Dawn a Diablo clone is more of a compliment. It's a Diablo 2 clone. I mean, I think Diablo itself has taken some different directions in, in more recent years, but we all really loved Diablo 2. And when we made Titan Quest way back at Iron Lore, like I was talking about, Mm-hmm. We did that because we loved Diablo 2, and we made Grim Dawn uh, subsequently at Creator Entertainment because we loved Diablo 2, for sure. So certainly that has to have made its way uh, into the DNA there. And you said you mentioned earlier that it's helped by, by fan interaction. Is that something that post-Kickstarter continued to happen as you guys released onto PC, taking fan feedback and such? Oh, yeah. I mean, we've been, I think we've been really... Um, I think the game's success has been driven almost entirely by fan involvement you know we, we didn't you know we're such a small studio we didn't have a lot of money to do any marketing um you know in the past we really haven't had very much pr or anything like that really you know and the game has sold well enough for us to be a pretty successful little studio even though we're a very small studio um, and that's happened almost entirely because of fan involvement you know uh, the game sells, I think, a lot by word of mouth. People get the game, they play it, and they say, holy cow, this would be a lot of fun to play with my best two or three friends or whatever. Um, and to this day, you know, we try to make sure we interact with those fans uh, and respond to them as quickly as we we can, you know, and provide them. You know, for a long time, we we were very active supporting Grim Dawn. We made a couple X-Packs, we made, we made constant patches, and we're still kind of doing that to this very day. Uh, and we, we, we want to continue listening to fans, and we hope that, you know, the Xbox... Uh, um, marketplace is a little bit different in our ability to respond really quickly to things Um, but we want to kind of kind of continue that same process of listening to what fans want and what they like and what they don't like and what they need and responding to that stuff quickly like that because i think that's a big part of what got us where we are today if that makes any sense (laughs) certainly absolutely I'm thinking about the the marketplace and how that might be different, you know, in the console space versus the PC space and your ability to react uh, and, and take in fan feedback. Is that something you anticipate doing, given that it's the definitive edition of Grim Dawn? Yeah, sure. I mean, I I um I don't I don't see us doing a bunch more big content up, updates. But one thing that I think that we've done really well on the PC side is respond and continue to respond to people over time with uh, that had quality of life requests and things like that. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the port that we made, uh, have, have, as a studio that's never done a console port together before. I mean, it's, there's various people at the studio who have worked on console ports before, but we've never done one together. Um, this is our first attempt. So there's bound to be things about the game that people like or don't like or want different or things that we could improve. And I think that we were absolutely, um, you know, on board to responding to that stuff, you know, and trying to do it in a quick fashion too. I think that one of the, one of the things that can happen with, with games sometimes is fans can feel like they're not being listened to and not being listened to quickly enough, you know, but I think I can't imagine how that would happen in the Xbox space. Maybe there's a recent example. <laughs> yeah, there, oh, there's plenty, who, there's plenty of examples out there. I don't, I don't get into specifics, but <laughs> I mean, I think that we, I, I don't, I won't, I won't say that that's the difference with us because I, I, I that's just discrediting a lot of other developers out there who, who sure. want to, um, but maybe don't necessarily have the ability to respond. But, you know, we, we don't have a publisher. We're self-published. We're indie all the way. Um, we have nobody to answer to besides ourselves and our fans. So when our fans say, hey, you know, you did X, Y, and Z, but can you do this other thing? And a bunch of them say that, we we, we, we kind of are obliged to say, yes, we, we will. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, um, It's a little bit different when it comes to like game balance and stuff like that. But especially when it comes to quality of life features, I think that... That's the place where we really like to try to listen to fans. That's interesting. And the game originally did come out in, I want to say, 2016. Uh, yeah. How much has the title changed since then? You mentioned expansion packs and quality of life fixes. How different is this game now in its 2021 state, a definitive edition specifically, to what you guys released in 2016? Uh, I would, I would say vastly different. I mean, there's quite a lot of, uh, other, there's quite a lot of features in this new version of the game that just didn't exist in older versions of the game. And some of those features are, are like expansion packs and stuff like that, additional, um, character classes and all, and everything that comes along with that, um, additional content. But there's also, um, quality of life features, like the ability to search for things. We, we have, um, features like the, uh, being able to set illusions on your gear so that you can deck out your character specifically the way you want. Um, we have big features, like we have an endless dungeon system that we added in one of our expansion packs. So I think that the, the game, the, the, uh, the game that was originally released in 2016 was, I think, you know, three or four chapters in like a single campaign and the game that released on Xbox as the definitive edition, which we also sell the same bundle on the PC is those same original three or four chapters, um, and then a, two additional expansion packs that have two or three or four chapters themselves, and then mm-hmm. endless dungeon dungeon system, and then just an unimaginable slew of quality of life changes and balance changes and additional content that we've added in the middle. And yes, I think that something it's to be said that a lot of that stuff was aimed at a PC market at the time, mm-hmm. um, and that's where your original question comes in into play, which is that now that it's on the Xbox, we have this other audience to listen to. Uh, and we and we we are willing and ready to listen to the things that they need as quality of life features as well. That's such a neat journey, and I have so many. <laughs> it just it, you have to think like bringing PC games into a console space has to be challenging. It's it's got to be more than just making the controls work on a controller. Uh, yeah. What types of things in the UI do you have to mess around with? Um, I mean, I think it's particularly challenging for this genre in particular. Um, you know, it, it's challenging for a number of reasons. The the ARPG genre is, uh, you know, there it's like a top-down sort of uh, hack and slash, usually, a lot of times it's called. Um, and it really 
the gameplay kind of boils down to clicking your mouse button a million times, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, using the hotkeys on the keyboard to to activate skills in time and at uh, you know at the right times and, and clicking extremely rapidly, which is pretty mm-hmm. much the way that most people play. So if you think about that, that's a vast that's already a vastly different experience than you're going to want to have on the console. Um, so, at, but at the same time, that that experience kind of defines the genre. So when we're moving to the console, we want to improve the gameplay so that it feels smooth enough for the controller and so that it gets around some of the rough edges that you might have had, you know, because it was originally designed for keyboard controls, but but we don't want to change too much of it so that we're really making a completely different game, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I, f- I think... Um, I don't want to use other games as example, but some of the games that we've already talked about tonight, they're more modern iterations, I think, were, were designed um, with console in mind from the get-go. And I think that that's, that's really good in some ways, but it's, but it's for fans of the classic genre, it can also be kind of a bummer in some ways because it kind of takes away some of the, the charm of the game. So, some, of the, some of the charm and appeal of this kind of game is that the gameplay is really in-depth the stats are really in-depth there's a lot of um, sort of theory crafting that goes into the way you play and consume the game and it and if we if we go too too much into changing the way the game plays for the console at its core we start to potentially damage some of that Mm -hmm. so on the one hand we want to make it you know play as well as we can in the console we want to um you know the very first thing that we had to look at was to answer your, your, your question very specifically the very first thing that we had to look at was targeting because you can imagine um it's really important it can be really important at times which enemies you attack and when you do it in the mm-hmm. game uh, that's kind sure. of a big part of your strategy where you use your skills when you use your skills and what enemies you use them on and on the mouse that's really easy you hover over the enemy and you click on him and your guy walks over and smacks him in the face with a sword right Mm -hmm. or you cast a a spell at him but that immediately becomes difficult on the on the console because on the console you have direct control of your guy meaning you use the stick to move him around um, and he attacks whatever he's looking at so you you get you there's a lot of difference between that the time it takes you to do that and the effort it takes you to do that on a console controller and on uh, you know mouse and keyboard so the very very first thing that we really had to look at which i think people playing the game will not hopefully not even notice because it just works and i think they won't they won't understand how challenging it can be too because it works mm-hmm. is targeting a lot of times these kinds of games can have it can be really difficult targeting monsters hitting the right monster that you want particularly with range skills and i think i think we actually did a pretty good job of that we have a pretty good system in there for targeting and prioritizing prioritizing targets based on the direction you're moving the direction you're you know facing direction you're currently pressing on the stick um, you know, which monsters are a higher level of threat, which monsters, you know, are, are uh, closer to you in the direction you're facing or further away from you in the direction you're facing. There's a lot that goes into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it works, it kind of just works. And you never really, you never really realize that there's, that's a bit of an effort to get that to work. <laughs> it's got to be funny to know how much work it takes. And when it's done right, nobody notices. Yeah, right? that's right. There's a lot of things about that. In, in game development, there's a lot of things like that. You, you know, you don't, when you play when you play Call of Duty, for example, you, you don't see you play Warzone, you don't see the effort that someone put into making the animation and the sound of a reload just right so that the player could understand and uh, and 
be sure that their lead reloads are working right at the right time, right? <laughs> like you don't. There's a lot of effort that goes into the very nuanced aspects of a lot of games that that end players don't have a good grasp on or don't see because if they're done right, they just invisible. They just work. That's an answer. That's like that's a thing as a game developer. That's that's like a truism as a game developer. <laughs> I can I can only imagine. That's why one of the as a slight aside, but I really enjoy the Dice Awards, where developers praise other developers. People within the community note things that, uh, as a as a I would call myself a hardcore gamer, but like you know, as a yeah. gamer who does not develop, you know, I would maybe not catch something like that, or I wouldn't think to to pay tribute to certain elements of games that that smooth things over. So that's kind of yeah, cool. absolutely. There and and there's so many of them. There really are. There really are so many of them. Well, being we could talk about it for days. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure we could. And like, I started to go down that track. And I'm like, nope, nope, bring it back, bring it back. Yeah. <laughs> being that you guys are an indie studio, uh, I would imagine that gives you flexibility in many ways and, and pressures in others. Uh, in bringing a game like this that has its roots in in other titles, uh, spiritual successors, perhaps in some in some mentalities, and we mentioned Diablo two there. Uh, does a lot of experimentation have to take place in the studio do you guys play games regularly do you test out uh i don't want to say competitors games but like you know play games within your genre to find out hey we like what they did we need to work on this for our game does that happen or is is that uh my mind state going too far no i don't think that's i don't think that's going too far i mean i think as a general rule as a game developer that's as a good game developer you're always doing that right Mm -hmm. if you're making a game and there's other games out there like it it behooves you to know as much about those games as possible. Know what they did right and what they did wrong um, and potentially integrate those things into the game that you're making. I, I think that that, like, that defines a good game developer. Mm-hmm. But specifically to your point, I think when it comes to uh, porting the game from the PC to the console, that's a place that we we as a studio don't have a ton of expertise in, right? So we do we do need to look at other games and say like how do they work and how do they, how you know how, how where do they fail and where do they succeed, um, and particularly like I was saying before, this genre in particular was really designed around keyboard and mouse input. You know, it, there's a, like if you take shooters for example, there's a lot of there's a lot of argument in the shooter community about you know console versus uh, you know keyboard versus controller, mm-hmm. um, but at the end of the day that that. I don't think that keyboard and mouse really defines the way that a shooter works. Um, but when you're talking about an ARPG or a top-down hack and slash, the, the keyboard and mouse interfa- interface is core to the functionality of that game. So yeah, we have to look at other games and see how they work and, um, and determine, and, and, and this is kind of the point I was trying to get to before, which is we had to look at other games and see how they work and determine how much of what they did to make their game work on the console is necessary and how much of it isn't going to ruin that potentially damage that core of the game that we find really fun right mm-hmm. and and even to even not to get even deeper on, on you here but like it, also since a lot of us are sort of hardcore pc players is that core of the game that we find really fun going to be really fun for console players and how much of that do we really want to preserve that's it's a big it's a big question and it's a conundrum for sure but I think we've done a fair job of it. Um, you know, the Grim Dawn is not a new game. It's an old game. And it was, a, and, and, and on top of that, it was a game that was designed to be like an even older game, right? Mm-hmm. 
So there's some sort of nostalgia to the way it plays. And so preserving that is important, I guess is what I'm trying to get at. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and a lot of conversations of game preservation, but I think also genre pres- preservation is important as well. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that the part of the reason why we have a good fan base on the PC is because there are fans of that genre. Um, and that genre has gone a bunch of different directions over the years. And, a, a, you know, Grim Dawn has its own features that are its own thing. And, you know, it's not exactly a Diablo clone, I wouldn't say, although that is the technical term for it. Um, it, it was designed around the idea that there was some something to those older games that people really liked. And, you know, perhaps we can bring some of that back and recapture some of that. And I think we did that pretty successfully on the PC. Um, now, granted, those those games were never really quite as popular on console as they were on PC. But mm-hmm. I think it. I think there are some fans out there that are eager to play this kind of game. You know, obviously, there's other games out there like Path of Exile and Diablo 2 that have been successful on the console or reasonably successful on the console. Um, so, you know, we we think that there's fans of the genre out there, even though they might not have that same background of the you know PC fans that are rabid for this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope they I hope they enjoy it. <laughs> well, so that begs the question: Why did you guys choose to bring it to Xbox now of all times? Um, I don't know that. Uh, I don't know that now is really a factor in <laughs> for for us um, because we're such a small studio. You know, we we did it. We did it when we were able to. Mm-hmm. Not so. We didn't really so much pick a time when we would do it. Um, I think ideally we would have done it sooner. Right? We would have we would have been able to release it on the console two or three years ago when when it was sort of um, at its prime on the PC too, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and I shouldn't say at its prime because the game still does really well on its PC, but when we were in active development, actively releasing the first versions of it a few years ago, we would love to have been able to do console at the same time. But gotcha. uh, as a small studio, we're really, we're really sort of not capable of that, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it takes a pretty big effort to to release a game on any platform and then to do multiple platforms at once is, is really, is really hard. That's kind of a thing that's reserved for much bigger studios. <laughs> well, how many people are at your studio? If you don't mind me asking. Um, in the early days of Grim Dawn development is really low. I think right now we're at 15. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, I don't know if you, I don't know um, if you really ever look into like the, the team sizes on games, but that's a really small team for almost any game really. Mm-hmm. Yep. Does that uh, does that help the I suppose the camaraderie in the projects or is there more pressure that way? I mean, I, there's a lot of ways you could take a 15 person team and spin it one way or the other. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that um, I really like it because I, I it's really on a small team like that. It's really easy to get consensus around things. It's um, particularly because the team was built by the studio founder. by hiring sort of like-minded individuals. And I think it's easier on a small team to have that level of cohesion, to have all of the people be of a like mind and, and enjoy that enjoy certain types of games so that we are excited to make certain types of games and we're excited to do it together. I think that's Mm -hmm. something that's, that's increasingly challenging to do the larger your team size gets. Mm-hmm. And and I've never really had the opportunity to work on a very big team, but I've worked on teams that were 60, 70, 100 people. Um, and the larger those teams get, the more difficult it is for everyone to sort of share in, in the totality of development, to share the same vision of development. Um, mm-hmm. 
you know, it, it, there's challenge, there's there's challenges in a small team too. The t- having a small team is is limiting. It's limiting in the pace that you can develop. But at the same time, there's kind of a weird thing that happens too, where when a team becomes too big, it can drag a game down. And we don't we don't have to deal with that as a small team as an indie indie studio. We we want to stay small. We don't want to get too big. We want to we have have just as many people as we can, you know, employ to make great games that we enjoy playing too. That makes any Certainly. sense. <laughs> it makes wonderful sense. It makes perfect sense. I think there's a lot of good examples on both sides of the argument for larger and smaller studios. Yeah, I mean, there's things that it. big studios can do that we just can't ever do, right? Mm-hmm. But there's also projects that big studios would never take on that we can do, and we can probably do really well, right? Right. Exactly. I mean, it makes perfect sense. I uh, I'm curious when you guys were uh, bringing it to xbox did you guys think at all about or rather were you hoping the game gets re-reviewed or taken another look at because if somebody were to go and and check out youtube or check some google searches you'll find reviews for grim dawn guys from 2015 or so 2016 uh for the pc game and as you said earlier josh that's it's no longer the same game as it was yeah yeah a lot has changed about it i mean yeah yeah sure it would be it would be cool if if it got reviewed re-looked at reassessed um it is a different experience and it's a different market. I mean, there's a lot of crossover in, in PC and console players, mm-hmm. um, probably more than a lot of people even suspect there is, but it is a different market in that I think that there's going to be a lot of people who will play Grim Dawn on the console that would never have played it on the PC. So at the end of the day, it, it's kind of a different game. We're floating it to a completely different market, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So sure, I would, I, would be, I would be receptive and excited for people to, to review it as a new game, as a different game. And, um, you know, I'm sure we'll have to go through the same processes that we did when we released on PC, which is, which is, you know, whenever you release a game on any platform, even if it's real well received, there's critics and there's issues and there's problems. And mm-hmm. when those crop up, you, you fix them. And when you, when the result of that is you have a better game. Um, you know, so I think that in that, even though the game that we released on the console is very different and very and and a ton larger than the game that we released on originally on the pc um we kind of have to start that whole process of of tailoring this game for this audience over again right Mm -hmm. right absolutely (laughs) so you get the reviewers the console reviewers will say hey you know this is fun this is this isn't fun or you know there's this problem or we really enjoyed this aspect of it and you and we have to say oh yeah okay cool so we can see that there's things that we need to work on or or wow we didn't realize that people were going to really enjoy this one aspect of the game that that they didn't maybe passed over on the PC, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. And that'll be, that'll be a fun thing to kind of check those heat maps and figure out what people are interested in versus not. Yeah, um, for I, sure. I'm curious now with it being the definitive edition, uh, you've got the game proper in there. And I believe based on what I was looking at, the expansion packs as well. Mm-hmm. Um, how long are you expecting a typical playthrough of kind of the main game? And then of course there's that ARPG math where replayability is a factor as well. Oh my God. Yeah. It's, it's really big. I mean, um, I think that I mean, you could finish the main game quickly, but I mean, you could easily take 40 hours to finish the main game if you wanted to. And what's um, the benefit of doing that? Because it is an ARBG with like better loot and things like that. Yeah, there's a lot to explore. There's a lot to discover. There's a lot of side quests that you don't need to do. There's a lot of um, secret things that you don't need to do. Um, we have a bunch of different uh, um, types of dungeons that you can find and gain access to in different ways. Uh, that even just in the main game, you know, leaving 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 out the 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 sort of the expansion packs, 
if you rush through, you know, you can sort of complete the main campaign. I mean, even that would probably take you 20, 30 hours or something like that. But there's, uh, you know, I think there's people that have done it faster than that, but there's quite a lot of content. And that, and, and honestly, that, that was sort of a hallmark of, of the genre back in the day, which was that you, you know, if you really got into this thing, you could sit down, you know, play Diablo 2. This game is a lot bigger than Diablo 2. Um, but you could sit down and you could search every nook and cranny and find every, you know, you know, complete every aspect of the game, every quest, you know, find all the the rare rarest loot and things like that. And that's that's a big part of what what the what Grim Dawn captures in the genre is is just that sense of vastness and sense of exploration and and um you know if you really want to you can get in there and grind for those pieces of loot that have like a one in a million chance of dropping you know one in a million oh yeah maybe even worse honestly oh no oh that's cool that's not all that's not all the stuff but there is there is that higher end there is that that sort of like long-term investment that you can make if you're really into it and we we have players on the pc that have played the game for I mean, we have a lot of players that have played the game for three, four thousand hours, um, and we wow. have we have uh, really realistically, we have a lot of players that have played it for twice that. <laughs> so, um, and it's funny to think too that it that it is a multiplayer game, but it's a cooperative multiplayer game. Usually, usually when you see the games with that level of investment, they're PvP games, right? Right. PvP games kind of have endless content in that you can continue to 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 compete in them over and over and over again in the same you know in the same levels with the same gear and all that kind of stuff. When people play this game for that long, it's because they're consuming new content all the time. They're finding new loot all the time. They're finding different ways to finish quests. They're finding quests that they didn't know existed. Um, you know, they're completing more difficult dungeons. We, you know, one of the things that the definitive edition adds was from our second expansion pack. We um, we added a, uh, an infinite dungeon system called the Shattered Realm, where mm-hmm. um, it pieces together dungeons from uh, previous content and some and some new dungeons that we created specifically for the mode. And it's essentially infinite. The 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 uh, it kind of works like on a floor basis. Each floor that you clear leads to another floor, like another dungeon. Um, and each time you do that, it gets more and more difficult. So, um, you know, it's practically infinite. I mean, you could, you could go down hundreds and hundreds of floors and get more and more and more difficult to the point where <laughs> it takes absolutely the best gear and the best build uh, to, to continue to compete. So, yeah, so there's a lot of ways to play and continue to play and continue to enjoy the game. Well, as we wind down the interview, uh, is there anything specific that you would hope that uh, returning players or new players find and see in Grim Dawn Definitive Edition as it does release on consoles? It's actually out, by the way, guys. Uh, it came out on the day of us recording this, so it's already available to you uh, yeah. in the marketplace. Yeah, December third was the was the official release date. Um, you know, I don't. I th- I think the biggest I think the biggest thing for me, and this is what I'm excited about, is that like I have, as somebody who plays pretty hardcore shamefully maybe so on both pc and console i have a bunch of friends on console that i think would enjoy this game that just don't play games on pc mm-hmm. like i that's the thing that i'm most excited about about this game is that uh, that i can grab it now you know having played it thousands of hours myself mm-hmm. <laughs> and go to some of my friends and be like hey dude come come play this game that i made that i that i love playing that they would never have played before and i hope that there's both fans of the game and people who will become new fans of the game that will do the same thing, you know, that would, that, 
that will say, hey, man, I loved this game when it was on PC. I know you don't play on the PC. Now that it's on Xbox, come play with me. <laughs> well, Josh Levine, game designer from Crate Entertainment, I can't thank you enough for your time today. Please point people or let them know where to find you or work that you are working on over on socials. Uh, cool. Let people know where they can find your stuff. Yeah, sure. Um, you can go to GrimDawn.com. You can search for GrimDawn on the Xbox store. Uh, we got social media uh, website, uh, uh, Twitter, uh, Facebook, all that stuff is under Grim Dawn. So if you go to any of those places and start search for Grim Dawn, or you know, if you want to hear anything about the studio, search for Create Entertainment, uh, you'll be able to find us there. Thanks for your time today, man. Yeah, thank you, man. It was really great. Really great talking to you.